Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Gene Epstein, economics editor at Barron's and the author of Econo Spinning, How to Read Between the Lines When the Media Manipulates the Numbers. Gene, welcome to Econ Talk. Well, uh, I'm uh, honored to be here uh, as a regular listener of the show and a fan of uh, the podcast. Uh, Excellent. I'm honored to be a guest. Great. Our topic today is the gold standard, and you've been writing recently about the virtues of the gold standard, uh, the underappreciated virtues, and the benefits that we would enjoy if we moved to a gold standard for our uh, monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Tell us what's wrong with the Fed's handling of the money supply and how a gold standard would make it better. Well, first let me say that uh, I'm fully aware of the fact that uh, even to talk about gold makes you sound like a heretic. Uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, drove the gold advocates uh, pretty much out of the temple of economics by uh, condemning the gold standard as the barbarous relic. And uh, so when I built my case for gold, I tried to find somebody uh, of some note who'd uh, ever said anything nice about gold. And uh, as uh, some people know, that was Alan Greenspan, uh, the uh, illustrious former Fed chairman, who at the age of 40, uh, hardly a young, angry man, he was uh, a mature economic consultant at the time, wrote a, an article called Gold and Economic Freedom, in which uh, he made uh, the major case for gold, that uh, under a gold standard, we would uh, no longer have uh, business cycles, that uh, a gold standard, as he wrote, uh, uh, that under the gold standard, a free banking st- system stands as the protector of an economy's stability and balanced growth. Uh, he also pointed out, as though that advantage weren't enough, that uh, uh, the chronic deficit spending that uh, government is addicted to uh, through the unlimited expansion of credit would also come to an end. Uh, and uh, that's uh, important. Uh, uh, Dick Cheney uh, recently and famously told uh, then Treasury Secretary Paul uh, O'Neill that Reagan-proof deficits don't matter. And uh, Dick Cheney then brought us the Iraqi war because deficits don't matter. After all, you can monetize the deficit if you're the federal government. So that's the second advantage of a gold standard, uh, that uh, it would make uh, the government more accountable to the people. The third advantage is something that's been less important over the last 15 years or so, but Alan Greenspan in his recent memoir pointed out that it could be a problem later on, and that's galloping inflation of the sort that plagued us in the 1970s and 80s. I think we've been lucky over the last uh, 15 to 20 years uh, because uh, there was the end of the Cold War, which uh, brought about uh, severe disinflation. I shouldn't say severe, uh, happily Blessedly, it brought about disinflation by opening up uh, so much of the world to cheap labor. And uh, we also had uh, the benefits of accelerated productivity, which also brought disinflation. Uh, But Greenspan himself acknowledges that uh, by 2030, uh, some of those benefits could come to an end, uh, that uh, the, uh, the incorporation of cheap labor from China and other parts of the world uh, that were formerly uh, communist uh, could already be achieved, and so that benefit would be behind us. And at the same time, what he calls the tsunami of the unfunded liabilities of uh, Medicare, especially Medicaid, as well as Social Security, could also cause extreme inflationary pressures on the part of the federal government and pressure the Federal Reserve uh, to print ever more money in order to finance that debt. So even that third advantage of inflation uh, that uh, we uh, could uh, can deal with, in, that the, even the idea that the, that the Federal Reserve has effectively dealt with inflation over the last 15 to 20 years is not really the case. It's uh, mainly the case that the Federal Reserve has been lucky. Well, I just want to clarify one thing. When you say Greenspan acknowledges, there you meant the 
Elder Greenspan, the, the more recent things he's written, not not the piece from uh, the 60s that he wrote about the gold standard. His concerns about galloping inflation uh, and the unfunded liabilities is a modern. He wasn't that prescient, correct? Oh, yes. Uh, no, he was <laughs> Thank you for the correction. No, he wasn't that prescient at the age of 40, uh, but uh, he's at least somewhat prescient about that at the age of uh, 80 plus. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the uh, some of these advantages or potential advantages. I, I'm I'm with you on some of them, and I'm skeptical on some others. So I'd like to talk about them. Let's start with the deficits. Um, I, I I don't know what context Cheney was saying. Deficits don't matter. I I suspect that Reagan showed they don't matter. My 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 suspicion is is he was talking about them politically, uh, but it is a problem potentially, that government can spend more than it takes in. It's sometimes a good idea to spend more than you take in as an individual. Uh, most people don't pay cash for their house. Most people don't pay cash for their car. They spread the payments for assets over a period of time. And some things the government does, not many, uh, but some things that the government does do have benefits that uh, – that are that that are produced over time, and therefore it could be rational, reasonable, and a good idea to fund them over time via borrowing. I, I think the the particular concern is that we fund things uh, that are not very productive over time. And my my general feeling on this, which which I learned from Milton Friedman, is that it's not so much how we finance them, but what we spend the money on. Um, I, so when I look at the deficit spending. I see more – it's not so much the deficit spending that's out of control, but government spending that's out of control. And whether we – if we had to fund it out of current spending, out of current uh, revenue, I think the political pressure to reduce spending would be there. So I think that's a plus. But that's a budgeting problem, isn't it? Not so much a central bank problem. Or do you want to clarify that? Yeah, sure. Well, uh the main way uh, that uh, the government is supposed to uh, raise money is through taxing, and then to a limited extent, obviously, you can borrow against future taxes. Now, uh, my point is that uh, when, uh, when Cheney made that remark, he probably didn't know quite what he meant either. Uh, he probably could not give you chapter and verse on how deficits get monetized. But to say that deficits don't matter... Uh, when you're in charge of the federal government, uh, is to say something very significant. Because if Cheney had been, a, had been in charge of a business, or if Cheney had been uh, buying a house on his own, or if Cheney had even been in charge of a municipal or state government, he could hardly make the statement that deficits don't matter. Uh, deficits, of course, do matter to those of us who cannot uh, monetize our debt. Uh, and that was the significance, to my mind, of that remark, that he could only make it in the context of being a federal official, and that it isn't absolutely necessary for a federal official to completely understand the monetization process to be able to make that statement. Now, with respect to what uh, you, you mentioned, Milton Friedman, I think that's very interesting, because Friedman constantly made the point that uh, the political economy of government spending uh, consists of sort of con uh, dealing with a teenager, namely that government essentially spends whatever it has and then some, you know, whatever it has and then whatever it can borrow. Um, it doesn't spend according to needs. It's, it's got a hole, it, 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 its money burns a hole in its pocket. To whatever extent government can get money, it will spend money. And uh, that's the fundamental problem, that uh, when you have the potential for deficits not to matter, then government can fight wars, uh, government can make promises uh, uh, that uh, go to the moon with respect to, uh, for example, our unfunded liabilities in Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. They now top $60 trillion. It's not their money. It's other people's money. But it, even beyond that, it's not just other people's money. It's money they can print. And, well, let's, uh, let's come to that. But first, I, sure. I just want to uh, say that that's a very important uh, the teenager model of government spending is a very important model. Uh, we're talking about it casually, but but I think it's a very useful way to look at government spending in contrast with what I would call the textbook model. The textbook model is, well, there's certain things the private sector doesn't do well, 
public goods, things that have externalities, and therefore governments needed to step in to correct the market. And we've talked here on Econ Talk about how sometimes uh, that rationale is used to justify lots of things that the government doesn't do particularly well, uh, although it can, in principle, certainly improve on the private decisions made by uh, individual actors. It often in practice uh, does not. But that sort of textbook idealized view of government certainly contrasts with the reality of the incentives faced by politicians. Incentives have no, politicians have no incentive to follow a textbook, uh, what economists call often a social welfare function, some strategy for making, quote, society better off, which is, a, in my mind, a meaningless phrase. So I really like the idea of teenager, the teenager model, which is basically if they have it, they'll spend it. They're not too keen on giving it back unless we pressure them. Uh, and of course, we sometimes do. I mean, you can view the Bush tax cuts as an uh, attempt to get the government to get away from accumulating surpluses through large tax revenue. Um, but let's talk. Let's let's hone in on this idea of monetizing the debt. Uh, we're recording this uh, in you know, the middle of May. In a week or so, there will be a podcast with Alan Meltzer that I have heard, Gene, you have not, where he talks about how uh, LBJ, President Johnson, uh, pressured uh, Treasury, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Martin to monetize the deficit spending to finance the Vietnam War. We didn't get into that very much other than to note it. So I, it would be great if you could talk about what you mean by the phrase monetizing the debt. W what does the Fed do? to uh, monetize the debt and make deficit financing uh, more convenient for, for the politicians? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, the, the Johnson case is interesting, uh, especially because uh, those were the days before uh, the one major reform in, uh, in hampering the ability of the government to monetize the debt, and that reform came in in 1985, which was to index uh, income tax brackets to inflation uh, in the in the Johnson days, uh, it was fairly easy for the government, for the Federal Reserve, uh, to expand the money supply, and by expanding the money supply, boosting incomes, and by boosting income, forcing us all into higher brackets. Yeah, uh, that was also uh, it was also especially easy in those days uh, because uh, we did have this was before, of course, the Reagan tax cuts, which uh, which lowered the brackets. We did have uh, brackets that were uh, up to 70%. And uh, so in those days, it was possible uh, not just to monetize the debt, but essentially to monetize uh, government revenue uh, by, again, expanding the money supply uh, through the expansion of the money supply, pushing up incomes. And uh, through the pushing up of incomes, people had uh, higher brackets and therefore uh, a lot larger percentage of their income uh, went to the government. We still have that mechanism to some extent, uh, even with the indexing of brackets uh, as of 1985. Uh, there is some potential for bracket creep. Uh, people uh, can have higher incomes in their current brackets. In addition, uh, the rest of the tax code on the federal and state level, as well as, of course, on, on, on the local level, is not, uh, is not uh, indexed. So that capital gains uh, and so on can rise if you uh, raise uh, the uh, if you if you boost the money supply. I just, I just want to clarify sure. that when you say it raises incomes, it raises nominal income. It raises the dollar denominated uh, income level of folks as prices go up, markets force wages higher, um, you know, supply and demand forces wages higher, and therefore uh, measured income will be higher. You're not richer because. Uh, unless something else has changed in the economy to make us more productive. But it's a nominal change that, as you say, pushes the proportion of income that people pay in taxes higher. But you're also referring to something more specific, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Now, that's, see, that's actually monetizing uh, government revenue on all levels uh, through, uh, as you uh, correctly and, uh, and very well explain, it's the rise of nominal income through the expansion of money supply. Uh, now that's somewhat less available because of the uh, of the indexing of brackets, uh, due to the sort of thing that everybody did notice: galloping inflation in the 1970s and early 80s, uh, which forced that legislation through, and that was certainly uh, a great achievement. Now, 
Uh, however, uh, when Cheney said in 2002, and again, I insist uniquely, he said this is a federal official, I don't think he would have the bad sense to say this as a, uh, as a city official or as a private individual or as a businessman, that deficits don't matter. Of course they do to the rest of us who cannot monetize the debt. But beyond that, the Federal Reserve can monetize the debt through its open market operations, and that uh, what we what we what we have learned in the textbooks is open market operations essentially consists of the Federal Reserve buying debt, buying the government's debt, that's Treasury bills, bonds, and notes, uh, and uh, pumping money into the economy in that way. Uh, now, uh, the uh, matter of fact, uh, the monetization of the debt uh, on the part of the Federal Reserve has become uh, less important. Um, the numbers I recently looked up show that really it's uh, the monetization of the debt uh, by uh, central banks around the world uh, that is even more important. Uh, about half of the increase of the debt uh, from 2000, uh, since, 19, since 2000 through uh, September of 2007, that is, that is about $1.6 trillion out of an increase of $3.2 trillion. Uh, has uh, been taken up by uh, by foreign official holdings. Uh, now, some of that is not to central bank, but much of it is. Now, so, in effect, far- we've been selling uh, some of our debt to the bank of you know, to the uh, to the bank of China, the central bank. For sure. So, some of it's going to foreign central banks. Some of it's going to, to the Federal Reserve itself. Right. About a quarter of a trillion dollars has been taken up. Again, the official numbers show. Uh, this isn't the, so these are not the sort of numbers the government advertises or parades, but that can be found if you look you look around. Uh, the General Accounting Office has available the numbers on foreign central banks, uh, not well at least on foreign official holdings. It doesn't break it down to foreign central banks, and then uh, the GAO and others do make available uh, the debt, uh, the increase in the debt held by the Federal Reserve. It's about a quarter of a trillion dollars. Uh, over the last, uh, from 2000 through 2007. But is it a bad thing that uh, the Central Bank of China buys U.S. Treasury bonds? Well, it is a bad thing. It is a bad Basically, thing. Basically, you're saying when... they're, they're financing the teenager, right? Yeah. The, the well, federal exactly. government's spending more than it takes in. You can only do that if someone is willing to lend it to you. Uh, if the rates at which you lend get very high, uh, then the teenager starts to think twice about it, mm-hmm. and the rates haven't gone up very much. They've stayed very low. Uh, so basically, the willingness of China and others uh, around the world, both private and public actors, to, to buy U.S. treasuries is um, – why is that bad? Well, it's, you know, it's bad, in, it, 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 it's bad uh, first of all, if, uh, if you and I uh, disapprove of what the federal government is spending its money on. But uh, we do let, probably. <laughs> yeah, many of us do. Some of us were not too happy about uh, Cheney's Iraqi war. Of course, it wasn't just Cheney's. But when a federal official is able to say deficits don't matter, imagine you're saying that on the on the individual level, or if you're running a business, uh, it doesn't matter how much money I borrow. I can spend whatever I want. If I go into debt, it doesn't matter. So I can wage war. Uh, I can have guns and butter. I can uh, I can pass you know, Medicare Part D as the Bush administration did, and have endless giveaways uh, and uh, promise anything because after all, deficits don't matter. Because uh, I don't just raise money through taxes and uh, borrowing against taxes. Uh, I have the power to print money. And again, I, I I point out it's not that Cheney necessarily understood uh, that government the federal government has the power to print money. Uh, but what he was able to say was the sort of thing you cannot say if you're a state or, federal, or, or local official or if you're a businessman or an individual. Well, I, I, again, I, this is a bit of a nitpick, and I, yeah. we should probably move on to the more uh, substantive issues related to the gold standard. But I, as a citizen, uh, again, I, I want government to wage war if it's a good idea. Yes. And if it's a bad idea, I don't want them to wage war whether they pay for it with uh, – taxes today or taxes tomorrow. What deficits do is allow federal governments to to pay for current activity with taxes tomorrow. We call them bonds, but it's taxes tomorrow because the bonds have to be paid off out of – unless we abrogate or pro- break a promise, which would be a, a very costly uh, procedure. So assuming that the U.S. government honors its promises to pay the bonds that it's issued um, – I, I would argue that the monetization part of it has been relatively unimportant – because 
of that willingness of China and others to to hold those bonds. And and I think that's been a benefit in the sense that it means that borrowing is cheap. It's been a negative in the sense that it means it's financed. It's allowed the government to say things like deficits don't matter, politicians to say that, uh, it, which is bad because it encourages uh, bad spending. But again, I think the issue is bad spending. I, I, I think it's potentially the case that monetizing the debt is destructive if it leads to, to inflation. But I would argue that inflation in recent years has remained relatively low and that that is a statement about uh, the role of those uh, foreign governments to finance that debt. If they hadn't, then the government would have been uh, in a different situation. If, if, if we couldn't count on foreign officials borrowing the money, lending us the money, then uh, and others – then perhaps the cost of deficit spending and future um, taxes would have been sufficiently high that it would have constrained current levels of government spending. But in the absence of that, uh, the, I would argue that the inflationary part of it has been relatively mild so far. I think what people worry about, somewhat correctly, but I'm not sure, is that if foreign governments decide they do not want to hold our debt, we may find ourselves suddenly – uh, we may find ourselves in a situation where maintaining the current level of government spending would be very high, and we'd have to make some very unpleasant choices uh, politically and economically. Is that a fair summary? Uh, well, uh, it's it's a fair summary from a certain point of view. Uh, let me uh, state a somewhat alternative view. Uh, briefly read a sentence from a, a gold advocate named George Reisman who wrote that when the government need not obtain its funds from the people, but instead can supply the people with funds, it can no longer easily be viewed as deriving its powers and rights from the people. Now, if you and I want uh, the government to fund Medicare, if you and I want the government to wage war, uh, then uh, we'll vote for it with our taxes. It's very good for you and I to know that we have to make sacrifice, that resources are being taken from us when we vote for these things. Uh, and uh, the only way for us to truly know is uh, for us uh, to pay more in taxes or for us to at least understand that the government's power to borrow means that it's going to come out of future taxes. But when it comes out of printing money, either by our own domestic Federal Reserve or from central banks around the world, uh, then we don't feel it, and they are not answerable to us, and they can run amok. Okay, so here's where I disagree. Yeah. I think we do feel it. Uh, we feel it in a different way, and I, and I, I think I don't want to minimize this distinction because I think there is an important uh, – uh, how the body politic and how we as individuals respond to bad policies. Uh, some policies are make it easier for us to respond uh, than others. Some – the ways that they're that they're structured. So, for example, uh, future tax payments are less noticeable than current tax payments. Uh, writing a check is more noticeable than having it withheld. Um, just psycholo these are psychological differences. And similarly, uh, the Federal Reserve running amok and printing money to finance government spending via debt monetization by buying up government bonds also transmits to the body politic through inflation. Yeah. So, you know, as inflation gets high, people yell. When taxes get high, people yell. When deficits get high, people yell in that they I think that in all three cases they realize that they're paying for something and if they don't think the benefits are worth it, they won't be happy about it and and the body politic responds. But my my claim only is that in the current situation uh, much of the deficit financing of the last 20 years, uh, we've run deficit almost all but one of the, or two of those 20 years, uh, the deficit financing of those, of those decades has not been through monetization of debt and has been through, as you say, the lending uh, of money from foreign central banks and foreign individuals and, Amer and domestic lenders who buy those government bonds so that the cost of it is perhaps – not as transparent, but I also suspect it, it's not as large. Um, the in, in, a, in, in the I'm not sure about that. I have to think about that. I might be wrong. Well, uh, the 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 I guess the uh, the only thing that I, I 
trust you and I can agree about is this, that you probably would prefer to live in a society in which uh, when, we, when you and I vote for something, uh, we feel the cost. We've, and uh, I imagine you agree that uh, we will feel the cost much more tangibly if we have to pay for it in taxes or uh, if we have to uh, pay for it in debt that cannot get too high because, after all, that debt must always come out of taxes. But if there is that third way, that escape valve, which government uh, really has been instituting, has, has, has enjoyed for hundreds of years, which is the printing of money, uh, which is the reason, of course, in my view, why it's wanted to, t- to, to, mo- to monopolize the money supply, then we have potential dangers. We don't feel it quite as directly if it's going to be hit, if it's going to be inflation, partly, by the way, because not everybody even understands, even to this day, as you have pointed out numerous times in your own podcast, that inflation comes from, the, that the rise of prices comes from the increase in the money supply. No, no, but I, the much healthier society, I imagine you agree, if we pay for it in taxes. I agree with all of that. No, okay. the, only, the only question, the only question, and this is the issue I have uh, uh, with some parts of the advocacy of a gold standard, uh, the only question is that we might disagree on is the empirical question of how costly it has been in recent decades to have a Federal Reserve as opposed to an alternative. So let's, let's, move, okay, sure. let's move to that. Yeah. Um, when I look at the Federal Reserve over the last 50 years, I see a surprisingly decent uh, track record. And I know this is in contrast to your view and others. I, I see uh, relatively stable output. I see a very dampened business cycle. I see unemployment being in relatively narrow bounds, and I don't want to attribute all of that economic performance to the Fed. It's not. But I don't – given that we have not had hyperinflation uh, in the United States uh, and, and very mild levels of inflation over the last 50 years, and more importantly, relatively stable levels, not just the level of inflation but how widely it varies. We, we had some bad times in the late 70s. That was a disaster. Agreed, but uh, overall, the 50-year period of say 19, the post-war period, post-World War II period, it's pretty pretty mild. I understand all those temptations of the government to print money as a way of financing um, government spending, but we have not been very prone to it. It seems to me, so I am not as upset about the status quo as you are, I think, or as others. So make the case for yeah. why I should be. Sure. Well, first, uh, let me partially agree with you. Uh, by the way, as, a, as an economics columnist, I'm often accused uh, by uh, Barron's readers, who tend to be rather dour about uh, uh, the economy, of being uh, t- too upbeat. And uh, so I don't completely disagree with you about the record of the last 50 years. Uh, I actually looked uh, more, re- uh, more recently at the record of the last 60 years, that is from 1947, the post-World War II period, through 2007. I, I want to just backtrack and say briefly that my I actually, if I had to summarize my main problem uh, with the regime that we have, I would say it makes it much easier for the government to fund wars, and that when the when the central bank came in in 1913, it financed World War One, uh, which I think the U.S. should not have been involved in. It should have been neutral and tried to uh, force both parties to settle. Wars, I think, are the main main problem. But setting that aside, let's deal with your question. Uh, over the last 60 years, uh, if, you'll, if you'll follow me from 1947 through 2007, uh, the NBER, which uh, keeps uh, the, the track record on business cycles, showed that nearly nine of them were years of recession, years, that is, in which uh, the economy either did not grow or contracted, and 51 of them uh, were years of growth. Uh, my calculations show that uh, those 51 years then did all the heavy lifting. Uh, sure. They're the reason why we're uh, more than seven times richer than we are than we were in 1947. And had those other nine years also participated in the same way, we would be about 40 percent richer. Uh, that is, uh, we'd have about uh, 4.6 trillion extra GDP, uh, but for those nine lost years. Uh, now, uh, that's not a tragedy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we should also add that uh, we've also gone through periods of uh, uh, double-digit unemployment, as we did in the early 80s. We've, uh, we also have uh, 
rather upsetting times right now, although uh, I will heartily agree with you. We do have a 5% unemployment rate, and uh, that's uh, relatively low, but we do have uh, bankruptcies, foreclosures. Uh, there's a lot of human anguish uh, that goes into those, that, that has gone into those years. And uh, the other thing that uh, we are looking at over the last uh, couple of cycles uh, are extended periods of what economists call growth recessions. Uh, that is, uh, a growth recession, as I'm sure you know, is a, is a, has been defined as a, a period in which the economy grows, but not fast enough to prevent the unemployment rate from rising. And uh, we had an extended uh, growth recession after the 91 downturn and uh, an extended growth recession after the downturn of 2001. Uh, and uh, those are bad also. Um, what, so the key, I agree with all that, yeah, naturally. Sure. The question is, what does that have to do with the, uh, a change from uh, a central bank determined money supply yeah. and a gold standard. I, so sure. tell me how a gold standard – and they're, one of the problems with this issue, by the way, in my limited reading on it, is that the um, details of how this would work are sometimes left kind of vague. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a cheap shot to say, well, how, you know, how, how would it work exactly? But give, me a rough, give us a rough overview of, of what you have in mind when you say a return to a gold standard or a gold standard that would not have a prominent role or no role for the Fed. Well, that's that's a very key question. Uh, I should I should uh, want to emphasize uh, something rather ironic right now, which is that uh, um, you're uh, we're talking about uh, what is essentially the Austrian theory of the business cycle, and uh, uh, we always like to uh, get uh, the Austrians and get this kind of view. Uh, uh, we always want to lend it whatever respectability we can, because it was you know again drummed out of the temple in the 1930s. By John Maynard Keynes, uh, as you know, uh, Friedrich Hayek, who uh, was one of uh, uh, the main uh, theorists of the Austrian business cycle, won an, a Nobel Prize in economics in 1974 uh, for that work, and so it has some respectability. And then on top of that, if you actually read uh, what uh, some of the mainstream economists have been writing lately, it's almost like we are all Austrians. We all tend to understand. Uh, that the bubble uh, of the bubbles uh, of, of the last uh, two recessions, uh, that is the the housing bubble. Well, excuse me, I, we're not necessarily in a recession right now, but probably we are. Uh, the housing bubble, uh, which uh, has precipitated uh, the recession that we probably are in now, uh, the internet bubble uh, that precipitated uh, the 2001 downturn, were essentially. Uh, uh, due to uh, at, uh, the, the expansion of credit. Uh, it, you can even read that in Charles Kindleberger's uh, classic work on manias and crashes. Um, he has written, and uh, I'm reading uh, uh, the first sentence of one of his chapters, speculative manias gather speed through expansion of money and credit, or perhaps in some cases get started because of an initial expansion of money and credit, and uh, Kindleberger uh, was by no means an Austrian, but uh, he, he sounds like one. Uh, and uh, so I, I think it's fairly uh, intuitive uh, that the expansion of money and credit is what precipitates these things. And then the next question is, and certainly Friedman thought about it and others thought about it, although Friedman uh, had mixed feelings about the Austrian business cycle theory as well, uh, but uh, the, or the next question is, what do we do in order to prevent the feckless expansion of credit? Well, uh, what we can do, and now let's imagine a very different world in which uh, uh, let's take a leap of faith and just imagine that, the, that, that all the governments of the world decide to go back to gold, and back to gold does not, does not mean going back uh, to the sort of gold standard we used to have because it was honored in the breach, uh, for centuries, uh, on it in the breach in the sense that uh, banks were allowed to expand money and credit, and when they did so, they were protected by government because usually uh, they were in cahoots with government. Uh, a brief story of, uh, that should stand for many is that the War of 1812 was essentially uh, financed through the, ex through the expand expansion of money and credit by certain banks which used that money to buy government bonds uh, to to finance the war, that money was then spent uh, in New England uh, to purchase armaments, 
uh, the money went into the hands of uh, the New England banks, who then were sitting on that uh, the, those, those, that paper and asked for redemption. They wanted that paper to be redeemed in gold. The government and state and state and federal government then protected the banks that had issued the specie. It issued the money. Uh, I shouldn't say specie. Forgive me. They issued the specie as gold. They issued the money. Uh, and uh, they couldn't redeem because they expanded money and credit beyond their ability to do so, and they were protected by government. Now, uh, what uh, we then should have uh, is a very simple rule, which says that we're on a gold standard and that banks have got to keep 100% reserves. Um, now, 100% reserves simply means... And when you say banks, do you mean private banks or central private banks? Private banks. So you're going to have privately issued money. That's right. Privately issued money with gold as backing. They're essentially warehouses for gold. Uh, think of a warehouse in which uh, you and I have money. We have, say, uh, let's say you and I have $100,000 I have $100, uh, in gold. Um, I park it in a bank. Now, the bank issues me a redemption certificates that are essentially money that say this bank will redeem gold for a certain amount. You know, that each of these dollars, as, as I imagine you know, dollars and, and sterling and, and so on were originally, pound sterling, were originally specified. Pound sterling originally meant a pound of silver. The dollar originally came from the thaler, which was, uh, which was weighted in silver. I say gold just to simplify it. Silver was also used as money, but let's just stick with gold just to make it simple. Uh, the rule would simply say this, that just as when you and I are storing uh, number two red winter wheat in a warehouse, we don't allow, the, we, we're given certificates for it, and we don't allow the warehouse uh, to lend part of the wheat out to somebody else. Uh, since the wheat is fungible, we don't insist on exactly the same red winter wheat that we stored, uh, but uh, we don't allow uh, the, the warehouse uh, to give it away to somebody else on loan because it is, after all, our wheat, just as this is, after all, our gold. However, if we have $100,000, uh, do we really want it all to be ready cash balances? Probably not. The bank could probably sell us on the idea of saving some of it. Uh, that the bank would then say, we're going we're gonna to give you a certificate of deposit that has a, a five-year term, which means you can't redeem immediately, and that would allow us uh, to look for people to lend this money to. Similarly, of course, if you and I have gold, uh, we, can, uh, we can participate in initial uh, public offerings of stock, or we could buy bonds from a corporation uh, with that money, uh, or uh, we... Uh, uh, we could uh, invest in a venture capital firm. All the usual ways in which saving goes on would, of course, go on in this new world. On the other hand, it would become impossible uh, for anyone to lend out money based upon demand balances, which is what banks do. It would be impossible for the money supply, money and credit, to expand anywhere beyond the actual saving decisions that people make. Now, uh, would that mean it would be impossible to have speculative bubbles? No, never say never. It would be possible. However, uh, there would be a much greater chance that uh, the fast buck artists who sell people homes they can't afford because uh, the, the prices are going up, uh, because the money supply is expanding, and, and uh, it's okay to lend to somebody who cannot afford to pay his mortgage because, after all, the value of his house is going up. Or it's, or it's okay for people to buy uh, Internet stocks that aren't going to earn anything because the money supply is expanding, and after all, these prices are going up. All of those speculative bubbles that essentially are built on uh, the expansion of money and credit beyond savings decisions would not happen. And therefore, it would be far less likely, almost unlikely, uh, that you'd have any, anything like the speculative bubbles of the last uh, uh, 15 to 20 years that have brought about downturns. Well, we had many speculative bubbles, although there's interesting differences of opinion yeah. on how, quote, irrational or speculative various run-ups in asset prices have been in history. But l mm. let's take that as, as, oh. an, as given. That, that, that oh, well, let's take that as given. Indeed, uh, as I say, let's read Charles Kinderberger's Mania's Panics and Crashes, which go, which, and he was by no means an Austrian. Uh, as I just read, uh, he said it essentially rises on a sea of expanding money and credit. Right, uh, and here's indeed, the problem. That's why I gave the story of 1812. This mm -hmm. is... This is, the Federal Reserve didn't invent 
the idea of expanding money and credit beyond savings decisions. The Federal Reserve merely, merely made it more formalized and codified it and lent it respectability and, not incidentally, gave uh, the, uh, the economists as a class uh, a role in all this. And uh, I think that the trajectory of Alan Greenspan's career uh, pretty much parallels that, that uh, it's very exciting to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. It's, uh, uh, suddenly the economists became powerful people in the 20th century. Uh, not just professors who taught things, who, who who did what you and I do. Yeah, no, I under, I understand that, and I agree with you. And I it just it, for those out there who who don't know the history, Federal Reserve was created in 1913. There was no Federal Reserve before that. Uh, we had a gold standard in the United States, uh, not quite like the one you're making the case for. Um, actually, very little like it. But uh, we, we had a gold standard in the past. But my my question was. Uh, there were speculative bubbles many times. Part of the reason there were speculative bubbles in the past wasn't simply because the federal government, uh, say, was in cahoots with private banks in the case of the War of 1812, but also because of flows of gold in and out of economies for all kinds of reasons, some of which are probably less likely now, just to take one, the discovery of a new source of gold yes. has a uh, expansionary impact on the money supply and therefore can lead to hyperinflation. Uh, various the discovery of silver in the new world uh, was very uh, destructive to the price level in in Europe. Uh, the discovery of gold in California in 1849, the gold rush of, had a inflationary impact on on the world because of the gold standard. So the gold standard isn't doesn't totally insulate us from that. Quite right. But but more, what I'm more concerned about is two issues, one of which is uh, institutional and the other is uh, political. The institutional issue is in the past under a gold standard where the nations, as you point out in, in your uh, ideal policy world, the nations of the world would agree to move to a gold standard. Uh, rather than just one nation. And in the past, when there was an international gold standard, which I think uh, the so-called classical period was the late 19th century up to the First World War, so roughly 1880 to 1913, in that period, uh, there was not uh, – prices were more stable, but we did have speculative problems. We did have a business cycle. So I assume you're arguing that that was because – in those times, the institutional gold standard arrangements are not the ones you're advocating, correct? That's right, yeah. And, uh, but, and, and I think we can, you know, I, I strongly believe, when it, especially when it comes to this issue in Occam's razor, that is trying to, uh, that, that simple arguments are best. Uh, there is, I think, uh, a, a very uh, intriguing and I think essentially plausible argument uh, that uh, if you keep the government out, uh, of uh, of the printing of of money out of the business of money, uh, which the government dearly likes to be in because it loves to print money and uh, rather than tax and borrow. Yeah. But if you keep the government out, then other banks, uh, just as in the story I told about the 1812, other banks will force uh, a bank uh, that expands too much or that does not practice essentially 100% backing uh, into doing so, uh, or it's going to cause a run on that bank. Now. That's uh, important, but uh, it's also possible. Uh, it, you know, we can't rule out the possibility that uh, the banks could all form this enormous cartel, a worldwide cartel, and and support each other. And so, let's just simplify it and say a simple rule: just as uh, the government has only one rule, which is it enforces the contract. The contract simply says that just as you have the wheat in the warehouse and they can't lend out the wheat. You got the gold in the in the warehouse, and that's banking it. You know, like a longer river bank. You know, which we get a little confused about, about what banks really do. Banks lend, but they also just allow you to Store. deposit money. Yeah. They hold it for you. It's a warehouse. The warehouse has got to keep your gold there, and that's th- that would be a matter of law. It's, it it would harm you. You could sue them if they don't abide by that. So now that's never been, almost never been the case uh, in the history. Of, uh, of of uh, of the of the gold standard, and so if we simply Wait, understand part? that, which part? Which part? Sorry? Is, I'm sorry. The part, forgive me. The part about the hundred percent backing. Correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that, that part has never been the case. So if we understand that, that the 100% backing is the case, then, as a matter of fact, you create other questions, uh, but uh, you don't create the question about the expansion of the money supply. Now, but getting back to, by the way, getting back sure. to your... I'm sorry? I'm not sure that's true. Well, okay. Isn't the... Um, isn't part of the issue historically, again, maybe you have something else in mind, but historically with the gold standard, uh, balance of payments, deficits and surpluses were settled with gold flows. That's right. Which would, is that part of your... Well, sure, because the, because the point, you see, you see, that's the other part of it, which is that uh, the uh, that that gold flows... Uh, it, it's a it's a famous point. Uh, I think it was Hume who made that point about uh, the ways in which uh, countries call each other to account that you cannot expand too much because uh, one country will ask for your gold. Uh, there'll be gold outflows. Uh, but and that's very similar to the to, to the to the, essentially the same as the point I made about about banks B, C, and D calling bank A to account if bank A expands too much because what will happen if bank A starts lending out your money and mine uh, that we've uh, put in as a demand deposit, then that money um, is going to be spent more than likely by businesses that will purchase uh, supplies or purchase labor with it and that those laborers and those suppliers will then deposit the, uh, the certificates in other banks, and those other banks, B, C, D, and E, will hold those certificates and then force Bank A to deliver the gold. Bank A is going to go under. Bank A is going to suffer a run from banks B, C, and D. Now, that's the reason why if the government actually just leaves hands off and, and, uh, and simply allows contracts to be enforced, uh, then uh, 100% backing will almost be the rule rather than the exception. However, I want to simplify it and simply, and, and that's similar to the point you're making about the ways in which, um, in international, uh, on the international scene, in which uh, one country called another country to account, there were gold outflows if another country was expanding too much, ex- expanding its money supply and weakening its currency and so on. Uh, uh, that's also the case. However, Let's just simplify it and say, let's treat banks like warehouses. Let's just have 100% backing and prevent the expansion of money and credit for that reason. That was never done. That's the simple rule. And, and uh, you know, when you talk about the politics of it, of course, we, we, we have it. It's a can of worms. It, it's, of course, potentially a non-starter. Uh, but, oh, uh, that's okay. We're, we're, and that's sure. not what I was going to sure. say. I, I mean, I think the fact that it's a non-starter is... Sure. Irrelevant here at Econ Talk because we're not running for office. Neither That's right. <laughs> we're, our goal is to make the world a better place. But I, but I wanted to make I wanted to get back to your point about the expansion of gold. You know, I, I had a letter from a reader who said, uh, "Well, gee, you know, with with modern technology and alchemy, uh, they can probably find a way. Uh, some some smart uh, person probably find a way to double the money supply, the gold supply, rather." Through uh, some kind of uh, you know electrochemical process, and uh, wouldn't that be very destabilizing? And I wrote back, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. You know, you can't rule anything out. Uh, yeah, that's that could not be my the case. Worry. But I'm sorry, that's not my worry. Not um. my worry. But my point is that yeah, okay, that'll be one moment of disruption. But he can't keep doubling the gold supply endlessly, right? No, so, correct. That might, what, there might be a short run spike. Yeah, and then of course levels. we can you know let's let's revive Goldfinger. He had some. Uh, some uh, some plots also about the gold supply. Clearly, by the way, that's the reason why I emphasize that no, y- you can't rule out the 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 the, the potential uh, for uh, the world on a gold and silver standard. Probably it would be silver as well, but let's not again let's not bring that in too much. Um, you can't rule out the possibility that uh, on a gold standard there would be some disruption. Uh, but nothing, uh, nothing like uh, the the sort of thing, obviously, that plagues other countries. But or even the one, the, the sort that plagues this one. If, if if in this country we have, just as you say, and just as I agree, uh, we have not had disaster. We have not had the Great Depression. Uh, we've had, uh, let's say, worst case, well, in the last wrenching unemployment. Yeah. I'm sorry, in the last sixty years, exactly. we have had the Great Depression. Sure, yeah. I'm sorry. We have had the Great Depression just over the last 60 years. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Over the last 60 years, we have not had the Great Depression. Uh, we have had uh, you know, $4.6 uh, trillion in, in lost GDP. We've had wrenching unemployment. We've had uh, uh, wrenching foreclosures and bankruptcies and uh, lives destroyed uh, to, to some extent by uh, jobs disappearing. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, we have again we have not had 25% unemployment. No. But we but but if if that's the case, 
then the U.S. Uh, the U.S. can do even better if if it were on the sort of uh, gold standard uh, that I speak of. In addition, as I say, with respect to output, I also believe that the government would be sopping up less in the way of our uh, of our hard earned money uh, if we if we if we if we force them to tax us and then only to borrow to the extent that municipalities and states can borrow when they need to borrow. Uh, we'd have much more of our own uh, uh, resources for our own use. Um, yeah, which is the additional advantage? I'm all for that. Uh, yeah. l- let me make the um, the mainstream economist uh, argument, and then I want to challenge um, uh, one of one of your um, components of your, of the of the idea that you're putting forward. Sure. Mo- most economists, uh, which I'm not one, but uh, most <laughs> economists would say uh, that we don't. Excuse me. I would, this part I would agree with. We don't have a very good understanding of what causes the business cycle. While I am sympathetic to the Austrian theory of the business cycle, which I don't know very much about, I confess, despite my Austrian uh, passions in other parts of economics. But in the area of macroeconomics, I don't know much about the Austrian theory. But I'm certainly uh, open and and sympathetic to the possibility that credit expansion uh, distorts price signals, which is my understanding of particularly interest rates, which is what I think is the key to the Austrian business cycle theory, and that that's a real problem with the Fed, that the Fed, by its constant attempts to fine-tune the economy uh, for both political and perhaps uh, well-intentioned uh, reasons, uh, that that that's, can be very destructive. I, I agree with all that. But what I think what most mainstream economists would say, and this part I, uh, I also agree with, is that we don't have a very good understanding of the business cycle. That part may be true. It may be true that distortions of interest rates and the overexpansion of credit through artificial means used by the Fed can lead to business cycles, but I would argue that there are probably other causes of business cycles. And it's, I would just say agnostically, I don't think we have a very good understanding of it uh, as a profession. It's an embarrassment, uh, but a fact. I'm also very sympathetic to your view that uh, the empowering of macroeconomists through the existence of the Fed is a very uh, destructive force for scholarship and research. So I don't – this is one area where I think one has to be very skeptical of received wisdom from the mainstream, certainly about uh, what a gold standard would actually be like, or et cetera. So let, let me now go to one institutional component that, I, that I'm concerned about, which is the 100 percent reserve requirement. Mm-hmm. So in the – just to summarize the argument so far, the way I understand it, uh, we could improve macroeconomic performance uh, relative to past uh, practice by moving away from a discretionarily uh, controlled money supply through a central bank to a more uh, to give government a more hands-off role. Um, and that particular hands-off role would be to maintain contracts between banks and citizens, enforce them. And to require require perhaps, or maybe this would emerge, the 100% reserve requirement. I think what some people have criticized that idea with is the resource costs of uh, providing the gold to back up that money. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. I think mm-hmm. Friedman has argued it would be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, which maybe is a very small number, but it seems like a largest number. Uh, is, that a, is that a relevant concern? Uh, well, you've I'm, got to hold the resource cost. You have to accumulate gold. And, you have to and, accumulate. And you have to accumulate a lot of gold. Yeah, and have it. Yeah. And yeah. Well, uh, and uh, accumulate a lot of gold. Yeah. Are we talking about a one-time cost or a continuous cost? I don't know. You I tell think. me, because I, well, I know there's I, a transition. We're about a, there's a transition a, issue. Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, uh, it, happily, as as you know, uh, you know, I think. It, by the way, it, it's rather interesting, isn't it, that the federal government made it illegal for citizens to hold gold in the 1930s. Uh, only finally making it legal to do so by 1975. Uh, so uh, we're not going to prevent people from uh, buying and selling gold, and uh, we already have, I guess, a lot of costs uh, in that regard. It, it was, by the way, predicted by the mainstream economists uh, that once you legalize gold, it would uh, be traded as a, you know, as a, as a, for its ornamental and, and limited industrial uses, and uh, they turned out to be quite wrong. Uh, there is a, obviously an interest in it. It wouldn't be priced at, you know, it, it wouldn't make a thousand dollars. It wouldn't be worth a thousand dollars an ounce 
if it were an industrial and uh, and, uh, and uh, ornamental metal, it's clearly traded as a precious metal. And so, probably we already have all those costs right now because uh, we know we 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 do happily allow citizens to uh, to own gold and speculate in it if if they want to. So there's a massive uh, market uh, for gold in the world, and uh, it's not bankrupting us. And uh, so now, but even accepting accepting your two trillion dollars, if you uh, excuse me, two hundred billion dollars, uh, if uh, if you at least go part of the way toward uh, uh, allowing for the possibility that some business cycles would be uh, obliterated, would, would not happen, uh, then uh, perhaps the four point Six trillion in extra income that I spoke of uh, will whittle down to just a mere trillion. Uh, that's worth something. You know, not that probably will be probably will come out ahead. No, uh, it's worth a lot. I just yeah. don't. I just don't. Haven't thought enough about it sure. to, to know whether the the statement when banks would back up uh, currency with a hundred with a hundred percent. Gold. I'm not quite sure how we get there from here, or what that would involve. Well, how we get there? Now, that's that's of course how we get there from here uh, is a question that that I've been ducking. Absolutely, uh, I'm glad you haven't asked me that yet. Uh, but well, we're almost uh, out of time. I, that would be Gene. very difficult. <laughs> how we get back, by the way, to essentially a world in which, you know, the, I think by the way, an, an important Austrian insight is that it's not just that historically money came from gold, it came from a commodity. It's, uh, as Ludwig von Mises, you know, the, the premier Austrian pointed out, it's impossible for money to, to come from anything other than a commodity. It cannot be created overnight. It's got to originate from a commodity. Uh, because uh, ju- just as, uh, you know, there's an interesting story, you probably are aware of the, the famous story about the British POW camp that used cigarettes as money. Sure. Why did they use cigarettes as money? That, isn't that a waste of cigarettes? Because the truth is, the fact is, that uh, money can only come from a, from, a, from a commodity that everybody tends to want, uh, because on day one, it's not worth anything. It only would be worth what its, intrinsic commodi- what, what it's worth as an intrinsic commodity. So how do we get back to that world? Uh, that's an important question. But I, don't, I, I believe that the costs of maintaining the, that world, in terms of gold simply being stored in warehouses or gold coins being minted, um, uh, you know, it, it would not be uh, too expensive because, by and large, people would use paper certificates and, and store their gold. Uh, I thought you were going to say that, that, that uh, to speak of uh, the, the fact that we would no longer have investment that would originate from the printing of money. Uh, but um, I imagine you don't mind, uh, and neither do I, mind a situation in which all investment decisions actually come from saving decisions. Uh, the, uh, I mean, the other part, the, of course, a key way in which uh, we, we all save is, uh, is through reinvested earnings. As, yeah. as shareholders, we allow corporations to reinvest earnings. And by the way, I happen to think that our savings, our actual level of savings is higher than, than officially quoted. Our personal savings is even higher than officially quoted. Uh, oh, certainly but is. plenty of yeah, savings going on, and plenty of savings would go on uh, in that world, but it would all be done prudently. Uh, I had uh, uh, another reader wrote in and asked me, well, gee, wouldn't, wouldn't that mean that nobody would take any risk there wouldn't be any innovation? But of, of course uh, there would be innovation. Uh, there would be, uh, you know, the high risk uh, would, would require the potential for high gain. No, it's a horrifying thought to think that um, innovation has relied on uh, the printing of money. It seems... Not sure, but I wanted, I mean, maybe I wanted to get back to one uh, uh, a point you made about uh, business cycles. You know, when we, when we look at, it's commonly thought uh, that uh, the housing bubble can be blamed on uh, the expansion of money and credit. Uh, that in fact, uh, uh, Paul Krugman has been saying that, uh, 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 Jeffrey Sachs has been saying that, and it's rather uh, a scandal that they say that. They condemn the Federal Reserve, but, but they never teach uh, this theory in their classrooms. Uh, and uh, I also think that uh, when we look at the Internet bubble, uh, we, it, it's very clear that that, too, that, was, that would have been impossible uh, but for the expansion of money and credit, a situation in which people are buying stocks just simply based on momentum, not because the dot-com can ever make any money, but because you can sell the dot-com to some greater fool than you who'll buy it for more than you paid for it. Yeah, but I don't think that has, again, although I'm, I'm sympathetic to... Much of what you're saying, I, I don't think you can claim that the dot-com bubble or other speculative bubbles in the past are simply the result. that They couldn't have existed without an expansionary credit. Certainly people can, can think that assets are going to be worth more in the future yes. than they're worth today without inflation. Oh, yes. 
No, no. I can, no again, right. that's the reason why I, I try to emphasize. I, I, I don't. It is a danger that that, this, that these organs can be caricatured. And and by the way, you know, most of the gold advocates I uh, am acquainted with are a little bit nuts. I, I have to say, uh, but of course, it's conceivable that in the world in which I'm just, uh, the world I'm describing of 100% gold backing, uh, that irrationally exuberant folks uh, can start bidding something up. Uh, it's just that uh, it's unlikely that they can do it on such a broad scale as in the housing market or as in the stock market where so much money can be poured in. Uh, there just would not be enough of, uh, money and credit uh, uh, to, uh, to create such massive bubbles. That's why it's just very unlikely that it could become a major problem. But uh, I'm not indicating that, that. That, in fact, was Greenspan's, I think, uh, bank, personal bankruptcy, uh, intellectual bankruptcy, was when he said that it all gets back to the imperfections of humankind. Of course, human beings, there are plenty of irrationally exuberant people among human beings, uh, but uh, it takes the Federal Reserve to give them the drug so that they can do a lot of harm. They can do some harm, even in the world in which I'm describing, but not the sort of harm uh, that, uh, that could lead to downturns. That's far less likely, uh, is what I'm arguing. Okay, well, we're almost out of time. Uh, let me close with a confession and then yeah. give you the last word. Sure. My confession is, is that, and any, any listener to Econ Talk knows this is true, that macroeconomics is quite complicated. I have a little understanding of it, uh, but what makes it complicated, I wish I had more, uh, which is why I interview people like you, Gene, because I'm interested in trying to understand it. And many of these macro money Fed conversations are me asking uh, sometimes naive uh, questions, trying to re-educate myself from my training in my youth or, or change my education. So my confession is this. I think these ideas are very interesting. Uh, I'm deeply sympathetic to the idea that government misuses the power it's given, and certainly the power to print and print money is easily abused and prone to the incentives to abuse it are quite are quite strong. I would argue that our to the extent that government has kept its uh, monetary activities constrained is due to the better understanding I think people have of of how inflation is caused by increases in money supply. And that has constrained the Fed uh, somewhat in our times. Um, what you're arguing may perhaps, and I'm interested in reading and learning and thinking about it some more, as I'm sure our listeners are, may perhaps lead to a better world. Uh, it's politically unlikely, as we started to talk about, this is what I want to close with. It's politically unlikely for, for obvious reasons that, that politicians like power and economists like power, and as you say, that they both benefit from the current system. But can you imagine a world where, through education or a change of cultural uh, understanding, more people would advocate a gold standard? Is that um, a possibility? And what would it take? Well, it uh, to get government to give up that power. Yeah. Well, first. Uh, you know, you have spoken uh, eloquently about uh, the purpose of the Econ Talk and uh, the uh, the purpose uh, you try to serve in the classroom and uh, in other ways uh, to get people uh, more aware of uh, the power of markets. Uh, we'd like the government happily. The government isn't uh, is involved in agriculture uh, in the same way that the Soviet Union was. Uh, that's why we eat. You know, that's why we don't starve the way they did in Soviet Union. Uh, but for the fact that the U.S. gave them food aid or the way they did in China before uh, they allowed uh, uh, more capitalism. And uh, similarly, uh, greater awareness uh, can uh, lead uh, to change. And uh, that's the purpose that Econ Talk serves. And uh, I am honestly deeply impressed by your openness. Uh, here you are a, a tenured professor, and you're willing to ask uh, naive questions about uh, what goes on in the economy. And uh, that's, uh, by the way, the only way to be a journalist. Uh, you know, I, I keep uh, telling young journalists the, 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 key, uh, the key rule about being an economic journalist is always ask, and in fact, I don't use the word naive, I use dumb. Yeah, I'm just ask your dumbest questions because sometimes <laughs> your dumbest questions can be your smartest. Because yeah. if you don't understand it, maybe it's not, uh, maybe your skepticism is justified. And so I think that skepticism about the economic, about the monetary regime we have uh, is uh, justified. And uh, greater awareness of the harm it does 
And I, I, I emphasize that uh, a good part of the Iraqi war was brought to us uh, by the power of uh, our government not just to sell its bonds to its own Federal Reserve, but to sell its bonds to the central banks around the world. And if you object to the Iraqi war, then maybe you'll object uh, to the monetary regime we have. Um, I say that especially to, uh, to, to the fans of Noam Chomsky and others. I, by the way, am also a fan of Noam Chomsky. Um, second, uh, if uh, you recognize uh, that uh, while our business cycles aren't as bad as they used to be, uh, they still cause a lot of harm, then you'll begin to see that you'll begin to wonder why is it that, uh, that the Krugmans and uh, some of the other mainstream economists are, are talking about how the Federal Reserve has helped to cause these things and then wonder what can be done uh, to, uh, to change it, to, to make for a, a more stable monetary regime. And thirdly, um, here, uh, this, is a, this has been an issue we haven't explored. We, we somewhat differ over what's happened over the last 20 years. I absolutely agree with you, by the way, that, that Paul Volcker uh, started uh, the, the high priesthood of Federal Reserve chairmen who care about uh, making sure that, that, that galloping inflation doesn't return. But uh, Greenspan and now Bernanke have greatly been helped uh, by uh, the end of the Cold War, which caused a massive disinflation around the world by the increase in productivity, which, uh, which also helped cause disinflation. And Greenspan, I think in the only really valuable part of his recent book, points out that by 2030, uh, uh, the future Federal Reserve chairman uh, is going to feel a lot of pressure to, uh, to expand the money supply, and he himself fears uh, that galloping inflation will return. And so that's a third reason uh, to, to be concerned and to think that maybe we can head it off by thinking uh, clearly about the potential uh, to replace this monetary regime with a 100% gold standard. My guest today has been Gene Epstein, economics editor at Barron's. Gene, thanks for being part of EconTalk. A pleasure. Thanks very much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.